Good dog owners tell their dogs what to do. They give commands. Their commands enforce rules that encourage the dog's good behavior and correct a dog's bad behavior. What happens, at least generally speaking, when dog owners lack the courage or they lack the interest to train their dogs with consistent commands? What generally happens is that they raise a pretty messed up dog that virtually no one wants to be around. Training a dog to heed commands and follow rules is the best and only way to give a dog a real life, to develop a dog into a well-adjusted pet that people can enjoy if they choose. Well, similarly, good parents tell their children what to do. They give commands that enforce rules, and those rules are calibrated to encourage good behavior and to discourage bad behavior. Good parents do not issue these commands simply to serve their selfish purposes. They don't do so in order to bully their children. They tell their children what to do because they love them, and they want their lives to prosper. But what is more, and this is something that is utterly impossible when it comes to training dogs, is that parents issue loving commands with the earnest desire that their children will one day love them for it. When children grow up and recognize the gift it is to have parents who loved us enough to correct and to counsel us in the ways of life, we love them for it. And so the commands flow in a very relational way. It might take a lot of time. It might take most of a child's life. But by God's grace, he brings us to that place. And follower of Christ, all of this shines a faint light on the way in which God loves us. The scriptures brim with God's commands to us, do they not? He charges us again and again to follow his moral laws. This is what you must do. This is what you must not do. He does this because he wants us to enjoy abundant life, to flourish spiritually. And all along, God intends that the counsel of his commands will ignite in us a love for him. God's commands steer us in the right way, but they are also inherently relational. It's not just steerage of life, but they're calibrated to bind our hearts in love to our God. This truth is on prominent display throughout this chapter of Deuteronomy 6. Just setting the scene, we know it well, but just setting it briefly again, and this will carry throughout all that we see here in this text. There is the book of Exodus in which God miraculously rescues Israel from Egyptian slavery. Then in the book of Deuteronomy, the law being established and described in Leviticus, then in the book of Numbers, I should say, uh, the Israelites are journeying through the wilderness for 40 years, receiving the discipline of those who rebelled against God's plan. And now Israel is encamped across the Jordan River, preparing to enter the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob centuries earlier. So Deuteronomy now is a 
uh, rehearsing of the law, some development in the book as well of that law, but preparing Israel to journey into this promised land and to do so as those who will heed the counsel of God, who will hear the word of the Lord. And we find in this chapter four truths about God's word in the life of his people, truths we must embrace, truths we must put into practice today. But here stated in this classic way as Israel is prepared to enter into the promised land. We've learned, first of all, that reverent obedience to God's commands is abundant life. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, that is the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, Moses says to Israel, that you may do them, in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey." In verse 1, in verse 3, you see the emphasis on doing the commands of God. That you may do them, verse 1. To be careful to do them, verse 3. It's our calling to be doers of the word. Then notice verse 2. As we learn to obey God's commands, the intended result is that we will learn to fear God. We fear God and thus obey His commands, but indeed it's also true that we obey His commands and learn to fear Him. Now the fear here could become a quaking terror at times if we are walking in sin, but that's not the general idea of the word fearing God. What does it mean? To fear God speaks of a reverent awe that does not run from God in terror, but runs toward Him in vibrant worship and a willingness to serve him. One commentator says this well. He says, it's the kind of fear that is, this is not obeisance, but obedience. Not worry, but worship. That type of fear, an awe in the presence of God that honors him. Now in verse 2, we also find the emphasis on the intergenerational orientation of hearing and obeying God's words. And Uh, This we'll find again in verse 7 and then even more so in verses 20 and following. More on that in a moment. But is obedience, this call to obedience, to a reverent, a fearful, in the right sense of that word, fearful obedience to God's commands, is this meant to make life hard? Is it just meant to discipline us, so to take away from us things that we want and to call us to do things that we don't find comfortable? God gives us his word just to discipline us that way. Is that it, to make it, make it hard? Is, does he give us these commands to make life less enjoyable, less prosperous? Of course not. Verse 3, notice what it says again. Here, be careful to do them that. You see that word in verse 3, that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. The blessings that God intends to pour out on Israel through her obedience 
are in connection to the commands that he has issued that result in blessings stipulated in the covenant that God has with Israel. Now there are some who read verse 3 in this way. In, In our land, they read it something like this. Hear therefore, O America, and be careful to do what God has said, that it may go well with you, that is, that you will be healthy, and that you may multiply greatly your bank account. As the Lord your God, your fathers, has promised you to live always as a Christian in a land flowing with milk and honey. There are those we refer to as prosperity gospel preachers who change this verse that way, who look at it that way. This is God's guarantee to you as a Christian to be wealthy, healthy, for everything to go your way. This, of course, is a manipulation of the text, and maybe we could just look at it particularly from the standpoint that these are the blessings that God has specifically uh, integrated in His covenant with Israel. We are not under that old covenant. And so it is completely inappropriate for us to read that as applicable to us under a new covenant on this side of the cross. We might illustrate it this way. You have a friend who's inherited shares in a mining company from a rich uncle. And this rich uncle happens to be, you find out, your third cousin. That's even possible. But every month your friend picks up a dividend check and you decide, well, I'm related to this guy too. I'm going to go in and I'm going to pick up my dividend check as well. And you explain yourself at the office and they say, it doesn't work like that. You have no shares in this company. That's kind of what people do when they jump on a text like this and say, this is applicable to us under the new covenant. It is not. We're not under that covenant. God has not made such promises to us. Does that mean he's ripped us off? Of course not. He has given us glorious promises in the new covenant, but those promises in that covenant are are less about health, wealth, fertility, and land, and they are benefits of spiritual nature, to profit in our walk with God, to find our love and our blessing in Him. So let's not read it that way, but know that Israel was facing that very, was under that very covenant. And so they were looking forward to those blessings in the land that God had promised. So obedience to God's commands is the way to abundant life. The text now moves forward at verse 4 and lays out this idea that unreserved love for God is the central focus of his commands. So his commands lead to abundant life. What is the center of these commands? What's the essence of God's commands? Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That doesn't just get inserted there out of nowhere. He's saying, obey my commands, and here's the heart of those commands. To love me with all of your heart, known as the Shema by the Hebrews. That's the the word translated here, hear. They quoted this verse so often, indeed daily, that they just would refer to it as here. And everybody would know that it was this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And as Jesus confirmed, and as we read earlier from the book of Matthew, this is indeed the first and great commandment, revealing the central focus of all of God's commands. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we should recognize this command as the essence of all others, Christ confirming this. Do you see it that way? Anything less than total love for God falls short of the glory that is due His name. We should recognize this is our calling. This is the essence of His commands to us. That verse 4 in the Hebrew is literally just four words. Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Ehad. God, the Lord God, the Lord One. He is Ehad, He is One. This statement certainly reveals that God is only God. There is only one God. But this statement reveals, I think, much more than that. Referring to God as a hod, as one, points to God's utter uniqueness. He is one of a kind. And also to the perfect consistency of all that God is, does, and says. He is, in this sense, oneness. He is is one perfectly integrated whole being. He's not an idolater. And so he always does everything for the glory of his name. He is not hypocritical or inconsistent, but every command is wholly integrated to his being of goodness and provides always what is best for his people. And if we get this, if we grasp that God is one, He is unique, He is the only being that is utterly consistent with all of His goodness and glory, if we grasp that in any way, then we say yes to verse 5. You shall love this Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I don't read heart, soul, and might as three aspects of our psychological makeup to be sliced and diced and put under a microscope and and understood of how we're divided up as people. I I just take these words to be in tandem. Love God with your entire being. Love Him unreservedly. And I think we have evidence of that as the New Testament quotes this passage in different ways. It's just saying, love God with all your heart, with all that you have, with all that you are. This command eliminates apathy. It eliminates as well divided loyalty to other gods. To so love God is our ultimate mission in life. Where does that leave you? As I've meditated on this command as the essence of the commands of the Lord to us for abundant life, I fall short. I do not love God unreservedly. Each of us holds back. Each of us repeatedly chooses to love self and chooses to love idols over the love of God. We need redemption. This command makes that clear to us. We need redemption. We rejoice to know it is to this end indeed that God has saved us. And it is to this end that He is sanctifying us. This state of unmitigated love will become our eternal mode of existence when we enter His presence and are glorified. Then, when we see His face, we will love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength forever. That's where we're headed. 
And that's what he is now working in us to grow closer and closer to fulfillment of this great command. God's commands are not issued only to steer our path. They are also intended to draw us to love God with all of our hearts. We see this in somebody who just takes care of a dog. We see this someone that takes care of creatures made in his image, their children, as they give commands wanting to build a relationship of love with their children. How much more is this true of our God who loves us with a perfect love and has never issued a selfish, harsh command, but has only issued what is good for us? Our love for God is then to overflow into every aspect of life, and we would expect that it would, indeed, that it would first be internalized, is the calling here, verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They're to possess your very being. These commands that lead us to love God, that are part of our love for God, are to be on our heart. We are to internalize them. We are to find Uh, affections for those commands verse 7 and then to teach them diligently to your children and to you shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way when you lie down and when we when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates all of life This is certainly a strategy for parental training that we find here in verse 7, but it's also just normal life for anyone who's embraced God's commands as life itself. We teach our children what is important to us. If we love them at all, we always do. Lots of different things we teach because it's important. So the Word of God, if it's internalized, if we know that it is the source of our abundant life, we will naturally teach these words to our children. I don't think this looks like having preaching sermons to your kids all the time. Lining them up and letting them have it from God's word. I, I've, I've watched that a few times in life. It's usually pretty ugly. Those children usually don't appreciate the word of God. They just see it as a tool in a parent's hand to get their way. Nothing like that. But a winsome way of explaining God's words and how it applies to life. It certainly would call us to read those words in our families. For the word of God to be read and sounded in the home. And I think for those who are single to read God's word with others. To teach that truth in even casual conversation with children at church. There's a way not to do that, but there's a way to do that. In subtle, gentle ways to be speaking the words of God to one another in our lives. In verses 8 and 9, many argue these verses are figurative, not intended for literal application. But in any event, the Jews applied it that way. They applied it literally. They wore phylacteries, a New Testament word. We don't really know what the origin of it is, but they were small leather or metal containers with a parchment bearing Scripture rolled up inside and then tied onto the hand, around the wrist, and it just sat on the left hand or on the forehead. The way to remember God's word, you're wearing it. And then on their home, as they walk in the door, they would put it up on the top of the doorpost. And the custom became, uh, followed that they would touch those scriptures in that box and then kiss the finger that touched the scriptures as they came and went from their home. 
a way to constantly be reminded of the words of the Lord. Well, I, I don't know if we should take this literally that way. I don't believe that the command here is for us to hang scripture texts in our homes from Hobby Lobby. Uh, I mean, maybe, why not? That's a good thing to do, but that's not, not the point of it. And I'm not getting paid by Hobby Lobby here for promotion either, but I just know they have those things. They're kind of nice things, but that's not the point. Well, I mean, how foolish it would be to plaster Scripture all over your house and not internalize it in your heart. Verse 6 is the point. That's the point, that it would reside in our heart, that we would love it and indeed fix it to our walls as you wish. But I think the point is to love that word, to internalize it, so therefore to teach those who are around us to be ever reminded of the importance of God's word in our lives. Now obviously, if you just stand back at this point and look at this, our world is going to say, that's really weird. This is just odd stuff. Why you would so look to an ancient book and believe it's the words of God and it's the source of your abundant life. Our world doesn't have any place for that. We're not going to get encouragement there. And Moses realizes this and he recognizes where Israel is and the uniqueness of what they are facing. And so he says thirdly that we are to beware. The world conspires to pull our hearts away from this fundamental command. To obey God's words, to love God with all of our heart, knowing that we're in a world that is saying, that's weird. Why would you do that? Verse 10, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. <clears throat> we have a world that loves things, that loves wealth, and it expects us to love wealth. Physical prosperity is the natural enemy of devotion to God. Money can be a tool to serve and to worship the Lord. But when we prosper financially, when we accumulate around us satisfying pleasures and find ease in our wealth, we can love those things more than we should. And as we do, our love for God cools. Listen, says Moses, you are soon to inherit great wealth. Do not let it turn your heart away from the Lord. The promised land is God's good gift to Israel. There's nothing wrong with it, but sinful hearts can take any good gift and turn it into an idol. Money, possessions, sex, family, health, natural gifts, whatever it is, we can love the gift more than the giver. Be aware of this danger, he says. God's blessing can so grab our focus that we forget the God who gave these blessings to us. 
Verse 13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Verse 13, to fear God we see again is the idea that you will fear Him, that you will reverently be in awe of Him and seeking to serve Him and swear in His name. That's not uh, an encouragement to take the Lord's name in vain as when people say, oh my God, or I swear to God. So we should not say this. But this is speaking more of loyalty to God in daily business. Just that He is our Lord and no one else. You shall not go after, verse 14 and 15, you shall not go after other gods, for God is a jealous God. Now let's, let's step back here and think about this. How does Israel relate to Egypt? The Egyptians are masters. They're abusers. They are taking life out of Israel and making it very miserable for their own selfish purposes. That's how they related to the world they lived in in Egypt. How are they going to relate to those who are in Canaan? Well, there's an extermination that is coming, certainly. But there are also going to be people in the land who live one way or another. And those people aren't going to be your masters. They're on the absolutely other end of the scale and they're going to say, come and join us. Come to dinner with us at the hill, under the tree, by the Asherah pole. And notice how we live life. Follow us. Come with us. Join with our gods. This is the way of fertility in the land. As we follow our rituals and our way of life in its sensuality that excites the fertility of the gods as our fertility is shown so the gods get excited and they will pour out their blessing and come come join us come with us Moses said do not forget God is a jealous God <clears throat> we think of jealousy as a vice because so often in our lives it is but there's a jealousy that is a virtue. It is a loyal love for God's people that wants nothing to do with evil gods and godless way of life. God is a jealous God because He loves you. He has covenanted with you. And when you break that covenant by adultery with false gods, God is moved by a holy jealousy. Don't go there. You're going to be under pressure. Don't give in. Verse 16, And do not put the Lord your God to the test as you, that is, as Israel in past days, tested Him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statues which He has commanded you. You see here again the emphasis on the commands of the Lord. Verse 18, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting <clears throat> out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. So a reference to Israel's demand in the wilderness that God provide for them on their terms in order that God would prove his love to them. 
pointing us back here in verse 16 to Exodus 17, where the Israelites actually got to the place in the wilderness where they said this, is the Lord among us or not? Is he among us or not? Does he care for us or not? They're saying this about the God who delivered them from Egypt, split the Red Sea, met them on Mount Sinai, and has brought them to the, to the promised land, to the edge of it. They're saying, is he among us? Don't put God to the test like that as you enter into the land. There's going to be some hard days there like there are everywhere on earth. Do not test the Lord. He loves you. He has proven that love. His words are for your good. Don't turn away from them. Israel's unfaithful, God-defying behavior is singled out here as the opposite of how Israel must choose to live, verses 18 and 19. Everything was in place for their prosperity under the covenant. All they had to do was follow God's good commands, His rules and His statutes. Well, this good life of fidelity to God can be quickly lost with disastrous results if it's not passed on to the next generation. It must be passed on from one to the next. And in verse 20, Moses returns to the theme mentioned in verses 2 and 7 and goes into fuller detail here. Notice verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Let's stop there for a moment. At some point... The children of God's people were going to recognize that they were very different than the people of the land. Children would eventually ask why Israel followed the commands of God. And sometimes maybe they didn't ask that question with the right attitude. Why on earth are we doing this? We're weird. Why are we so weird? Just thinking about that moment in the development of a child, God can save a child at any age that he chooses, and the Bible puts no limits upon baptism. But there is a stretch of time when a child growing up in a Christian home knows nothing else and sees nothing else. He or she just looks at the Christian life as the normal world. This is just the way that, I live, that we live. This is life. This is what we do. These are the things that are right. These are the things that are wrong. We go to church with God's people. We hear God's word. Everybody would love God, wouldn't they? But then comes a time when a child says, wait a minute. My parents live very differently than other families. Responding to the word of the Lord makes us really odd. Our church teaches a way of life that is very unpopular What's going on? I think it's at that point when talk about a child's conversion and talk about baptism start to make sense. When they can see the ways of the Lord are ehad. They are one. They are unique. And we are following that Lord. Now notice how God instructs Israel to approach that question. Back to the text itself, but that question from an inquiring young person. Dad, Mom, why do we live like we do? What's the, re what's the way forward from there? 
Notice verse 21. It's beautiful. It says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. Do you see what he's saying? You see the wisdom of the council here. Why do we do these things? Why do we follow the commands of the Lord that make us so different from the world around? Let me tell you a story. Hear this historical account. They're to point to the mighty works of God in redemption, to their own experience, to the experience of God's people through the ages. The children of believers must receive God's word not simply as advice from parents, but as the words of the living God to all generations, one unifying story, one unifying faith rehearsed and put on display. Indeed, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, and in the words of the Lord that are sounded in the home and in the church. I, I think there's some wisdom here for us as parents particularly when there's even objections from our children is why we live this way. Why do we do what we do? I think there's wisdom in recounting what God has done to save you. What He's done to rescue you from sin. The joy that He has put in your heart and in your life. The communication of the fact that no word from the Lord has ever steered us wrong. I think that story is more likely to connect than argument. God is known not merely by what He says, but also by what He does. Scripture pulsates with the glorious works of God, and His redemptive works are the inspiration of our moral decisions. They are the substance of our hymns of praise. And may we, as a culture, as a church, just applying this, never dismiss the biblical stories taught to our children. Never, ever, ever do that. Every once in a while you hear a conversation that's kind of like, yeah, the children always get Bible stories, but the, you know, the real theology comes in the adult class with the doctrine courses. No, the stories. The stories are the doctrine. The works of God are the foundation under our feet. And may we appreciate and celebrate that our people, our young people, are hearing the story of redemption. We need those stories in our life and in the younger generations behind us. And, verse 24, the Lord commanded us then to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are to this day. So having told the story of redemption, it does come then, the parent does come then to say, this is for our good, this comes from the Lord. And the young person says, well, what Lord? 
The same one who rescued us from slavery in Egypt. That Lord has given us his commands. The Lord who wrenched us from the hands of Pharaoh with mighty works, who led us and sheltered us with his presence in the wilderness. The Lord who split the sea, who wrecked Egypt's army and kept them from killing us and enslaving us again. The Lord who descended on Mount Sinai and gave us his words for our abundance and goodness and life. That Lord. This one who has loved us this way and has always issued his words, verse 24, for our good always. And thus we see on this side of the cross the significance of pointing back to the work that Christ has done to die in the place of sinners, to rise from the dead and to give life to his people. This story is our hope. And it will be then, as we put it into practice, as we do the words of the Lord, verse 25, it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all his commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Not that we earn a righteous standing by obedience that atones for our sin. That's not what righteousness means here. But here it just means the right way of living before God. It's following the words of God that lead us to live the right way before him. The commands of the Lord. We understand in a practical way how commands can help a dog become a good dog. How commands are an important part of how parents love their children. But then to see this relational aspect that these commands are intended to give us abundant life and to bring us to love God with all of our heart. But as we think of the Word of God, it breaks down into three basic aspects. There are, of God's Word, in God's Word, there are the testimonies. The testimonies are the truths about God and His works. The history, the wisdom, the theological assertions, the arguments against false doctrine. These are the testimonies about God. Here are the facts about Him. Secondly, there are the promises of God. What He says about the future what he promises will be one day, what he promises about his presence in the future as you head there. And then there is thirdly, the commands of the Lord, the imperatives, God's good counsel that's intended to steer our souls toward prosperity, to help us love him with all of our heart. The testimonies, the promises, the commands. Obviously, Deuteronomy 6 has aspects of testimony and promise, but it's heavy with the commands. We have to realize that's not all that there is to Scripture, certainly, but when we consider these commands here in this classic text, it reminds us of our Lord's words that this is the first and great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And of His word that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love Him, we keep His commandments. And if we keep His commandments, we love Him. He continues to build a depth of relationship as we respond to those directives, as we follow the rules that He has laid out, as we follow His moral guidance, as we listen. It was by loving us that He gave us His commands in the first place. 
And he gives us his commands then to transform us into his likeness, to live an abundant life, to train us and develop us for his glory and for our good always. That would be absolutely foolish for us to walk from here and think that we can do this in our own strength. We will not in this life love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We cannot fulfill the word of the Lord to us in our own power. But what's our story? The parallel to verse 21. Why do we do these things? Let me tell you a story. We were slaves in Egypt. Our story is so much more glorious yet. Our story is let me tell you of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. By God's grace, that story is at the very heart of our coming to understand that the commands of the Lord are for our good and for His glory. And if that story is not your story, I pray by God's grace that it will become your story. Because on that foundation, we come to know the one true and living God and to know the love for which we were redeemed. Father, we praise you that we can now come before this table and we can recognize again your love for us in Christ, the wonderful work, the glorious work that you did to send our Savior to bear our sin and to give us life in his name. Draw those who know not Christ to that saving knowledge and for those who do. May we rejoice around this table together and commune with one another as the body of Christ, and commune with you as our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.